Hey Church of the Beloved, my name is Kevin Zoe and I'm the production manager here at COTV. Just wanted to say a quick thanks for tuning in to our weekly sermon podcast. Today's message is brought to us by our interim senior pastor, Abe Lee. He's preaching from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1-15. through 15. Uh, For those of you who don't know, my name is Abe. I'm the interim senior pastor. What's up, Maurice? Uh, So last week, um, if you didn't know, we lost internet access here at Cervantes. So I'm really sorry for those of you who wanted to join us online but weren't able to. Uh, We don't have a video of it, uh, unfortunately, because of the way the system works here. But we do have it on iTunes and Spotify as a podcast. Uh, I'll tell you, we found out why we lost internet, and let me just explain it's because of Putin. It turns out Cervantes, their headquarters is based in Spain. Spain made a decision that all their facilities would shut down because of cyber attacks over the weekend, including theirs in Chicago. So we were prepared for today that shutdown to happen again, but thankfully we're, we're online, right? All right, we should be. If you're not getting this, God bless you all. Um, but today we want to come back and we want to wrap up our short sermon series that we started a few weeks back on the generous life. We've been talking about what gospel-informed and gospel-transformed stewardship looks like, what, what a gospel-based stewardship is. And that it basically, a gospel-based stewardship uh, explains God's original intent of stewardship, that his beloved are called to be faithful stewards of everything God provides us by knowing God more so that we can respond to any and to every opportunity based on God's character, not our own, right? We considered, you know, how God has called us to be faithful stewards of something called chiron, which is time or seasons, moments. God has called us to be faithful stewards of our talents. God has called us to be faithful stewards of our spiritual gifts. And today, we're going to consider how God's called us to be faithful stewards of our resources, like our money, our apartments, our homes, our cars or bicycles, whatever he has, or things. Honestly, this is actually the hardest one, the hardest one to talk about, because the thing is, I don't want anyone to misinterpret what I'm saying from the pulpit here, because it'd be very easy to, because we're not going to spend time explaining how you need to give money to the church. That's not the point. We're not going to talk about how much you should be giving, or whether tithing is a biblical requirement. I'm not going to talk about those things. It's It's definitely not my intention to to have you leave thinking that you have to give to be prosperous in this life. You know, I've said this before, and I'm going to say it over and over again. The prosperity gospel or the health and wealth gospel, it is not. It is not the gospel that Christ teaches, right? We do not believe in a name it and claim it kind of philosophy unless that there's an understanding that the only naming that should happen is when the desires of God is in our life and the word of God abides in our hearts, that's when we can claim something. I focus on these other topics, you know, time, talents, gifts. I focus on those first because I, I wanted to make sure that we understood that stewardship, um, faithful stewardship, includes those things. It includes caring for and managing the things of God well while we're here on this planet. And today we focus on the last one, which is money or our things. Because... That's the one everyone thinks of when they think of stewardship. There's a theologian, Martin Luther. Many of you know who he is. He once wrote this about conversion uh, to Christianity. He said this, 
people go through three conversions. The conversion of their head, the conversion of their heart, and the conversion of their pocketbook or their wallet or purse. Unfortunately, not all at the same time. Now, it's also been said that, you know, if you want to understand the priorities for somebody, go look at their checkbook. Though, as I was writing this, I realized checkbooks are not really a thing anymore. So if we modernize that uh, saying, if you want to know the priorities of a person, look at their Venmo account or their PayPal or their Zelle history. If you look at the Bible, if you, according to some scholars, there are over 2,000 verses in the Bible that relate to money. It's a big deal. It's a, from a biblical, biblical perspective, it's still a big deal. There's, there's an old phrase, you know, old phrase that became a movie, get rich or die trying. You know, people say that money makes the world go round. Money lets us gather in this space. Money allows us to pay for heat in our homes. If it keeps on warming up, we don't have to worry about that. We pay for, to watch a movie, to, to go eat dinner. God understood that his design could lead some to incorrectly prioritize money and the pursuit of it over him. So he made it really clear in his scripture how we need to view it, how we need to treat it. But the reality of it is this. The conversion of our pocketbook, our purse, sometimes it's, a, it's really, sometimes it's the most difficult thing to do. Now before we get too deep into the passage that we read, was read today, the lesson that Paul writes about, which is an example of the Macedonian church that was given to the Corinthian one. Before we get into that, I want to spend a moment to set the stage, to give some context, um, and to tell you directly, you know, starting with how we should look at money, how we should look at those resources that have been given to us, our riches, our treasures, ultimately are not ours. That's the first thing. We started the series off by uh, reminding each other that everything, literally everything belongs to God, right? In 1 Chronicles chapter 29, 14 to 17, there's a story of Solomon's coronation. And King David and the entire country of Israel is bringing these materials so that the temple of God could be built during Solomon's reign. I'm going to read from that. This is David's prayer during that time. He said, but who am I? What is my people? That we should... Be able thus to offer willingly, for all things come from you, and of your own have we been given you. Have we given you? For we are strangers before you and sojourners as all our fathers were. Our days on earth are like a shadow, and there's no abiding. O oh Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand. <laughs> it's all your own. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things, and now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. Everything that was being brought to the table for the building of God's temple, it already belonged to God. Everything was, everything is God's, it's his. All the goods, all the money, all the resources, it's all God's stuff. So here's the thing. If everything we have, if your job, your income, your house, your apartment, whatever, if it's all God's to begin with, I'm going to challenge you to reframe the question that you may have already asked yourself when, when it comes to you know, when you're preparing to give offering or tithe or a donation to 
church or to a ministry, the question that you probably have asked yourself is, how much should I give? I think that maybe we can reframe the question to, how much should I keep? How much of God's stuff do I need to hold on to? Because we're not giving God our stuff. We're returning or bringing back to God his stuff. We're just using it now. We've gotten his permission, and we have his encouragement to use it. But what I bring to the church, it's not me giving to the body of Christ. It's me returning it to God. I don't give my offering. I don't give my tithe. I bring it. At the heart of this mindset, this mind shift, is a call to trust God and to convert our pocketbook. It's a call to surrender, to give up all control because I'm just a steward of God's stuff. Another thing I want to point out and focus on for a moment is the word tithe. If you've grown up in the church, you've probably heard the word um, and you know what it is, you, you believe you do. And if you haven't grown up in the church or you, church, you don't know what it is, tithe is it's kind of more of an Old Testament term or concept, in my opinion. It was, hear me out, it was basically uh, what the Israelites were commanded by God to give to the church as a tax. Today, you know, we talk about it as a commitment of, of giving 10% of one's income. But think about the original. When Israel was first told to do tithe, they were a theocracy. So there was no distinction between the church and state. So the money that was going to support the running of the church was also going to support the running of government. And it actually was not limited to 10%. If you were to include all the other requirements around giving that's described in the Old Testament, a devout Jew would be giving upwards of 30, 35% of their income regularly to the church every year. And the reason I say that tithing is more of an Old Testament thing is this. And again, hear me out. First, it's because Jesus only mentions the word itself once. In Matthew chapter 23, 23 Jesus is pretty pissed off at the Pharisees. And this is what he says to them. He says to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Basically, Jesus calls out those who, who, who should know better. He's not saying tithing is bad, but they should have known better. And they should have, as a result, done better. Because the heart of giving, that had been lost to the scribes and the Pharisees. They, they spent so much time trying to figure out the minutia of how to give a tenth of their herb garden that they ignored the needs of the vulnerable. They ignored the needs of the downtrodden that were around them. Jesus was redirecting them and he's redirecting us to understand the heart of tithe versus the act of tithe. And at the heart of tithe is this. We are called to be faithful stewards of everything that belongs to God for God. And that includes what's been given to us financially. So with this comes a, a, a new concept, I think. Many people call it grace giving. Giving out of the grace that we've received. And giving out of the grace we've received, it doesn't limit you to just 10% or something like that. Giving out of the grace we've received calls us to consider the abundance of God and joyfully give to the family of God. You know, tithing, fine, 10%, that, for some, that's going to be entry level. And that's old school. Because the beloved of God are called to give out of the abundance of grace that God has granted to you and granted to me. 
that's the context. And so now I want to spend time looking at the passage that Sarah read today. And thank you, Sarah. Sarah's trying really hard. She was nervous about being more emotive. Uh, I think she did a good job, though she doesn't think so. At least she was crying as she walked down the steps, so encourage her later. Um, I'm just kidding. She's not. Uh, originally, I had identified two chapters. I was going to have her read chapters 8 and 9, but I thought that might be a little excessive. Um, so I just had her read verses 1 to 15. But in this passage, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church uh, about the Macedonian church to encourage the Corinthians with the Macedonian example. Now, the Macedonian church in northern Greece, uh, they weren't well off. They are pretty poor. It's like a small town church. They had very little in the one way of funds or finances. I kind of think of them as Moldova uh, right now, trying so hard to bring in as many refugees, but they just need help to do it because they just don't have very much. Um, but this church gave out of their poverty. And then they gave out of their poverty with joy. In verse 2 of our passage today, it says this, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. And as you read through this passage that uh, Sarah read for us, you see that the Macedonian example um, it was to provide relief of the saints. You know, it was for the poor, likely in Jerusalem, who were in need. I'll mention this. I believe that this is giving us, uh, this was a, the giving was to address a very specific need. It was an extraordinary giving event. So it's not necessarily referring to the regular giving of, to the church, uh, but the mindset, the principles can absolutely be applied to regular giving as well as extraordinary giving. I want to look at that. Now, I'll mention that back in the 90s, I was a social worker, and I was making like, um, I don't know if for some of you this might seem like a lot, for some of you might just laugh, but I was making like 20000 a year, um, which was really hard to survive on uh, back then. Survival was my mantra. There was a period of time where I just ended up living in my car because I made so little money. Um, this was with a master's degree and everything. I was like, I'm just dying here. So, so for me at the time, giving to charity, giving to the church, which I didn't even attend at the time, so it wasn't a thing. But giving was not even remotely something I was thinking of or something I wanted to do. Um, I could barely su survive by covering my rent and gas and insurance and all that kind of stuff. So, so I understand that there are those of you right now struggling, struggling to make ends meet. And I understand the hesitancy to give when you are poor. And honestly, it, to me, it makes financial sense to not give. And, and how do I give when I got nothing to give? But as I was preparing for today, I had to ask myself the question, does it make sense from the gospel perspective to have this mindset? And I don't know. Because the Macedonians, it was in their poverty, by the grace of God, that they found joy and then they gave. The Macedonian principle, the way they thought was this. They said, we're so blessed so that we can be generous. You know, they, they, so they, whatever they had, they would keep what they needed and then return the rest to God for the sake of his beloved, for the sake of their sisters and their brothers in Christ. There was a need that was identified, and they begged for the chance to support their family, family that they have never met. In verse 4, it says very specifically, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Because what God had provided for the Macedonians 
He provided it not so that they could live extravagantly. What God had provided for the Macedonians was so that they could give generously, give generously to the body of Christ so they could find their joy in their generosity. In verse 5, it tells us how they did this. It says, And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and by the will of God to us. And it surprised Paul that they, that they gave it all, but he understood. He understood why they did because the church in Macedonia, they had the right order. They first gave themselves to God and then they drew nearer to the Father so that they could better understand what stewarding the riches that they had, the resources that God had provided should and could go back to those in need. And when they gave themselves first to God, the Christians in Macedonia, they understood that God's grace creates a love that overflows with joy and that shows itself in a generosity that works in spite of poverty. And ultimately, the perfect example of that is Christ. In verses 8 and 9, it says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake, for your sake, he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. See, grace leads to love. Love leads to joy. Joy leads to generosity. And the generosity of the Macedonians was not a requirement. It wasn't a precursor to love, to grace, or mercy. It was an outpouring of it. It was a sign that they understood what it was that Christ gave to them, or, or, or to you, to me. And as a result, they couldn't help but help and give. I love the fact that, that how they gave wasn't impractical, though. It says in, uh, it was grace-giving. Verse 3 says, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. See, they didn't ask themselves, How much should I give? They asked themselves, How much do I keep? And after figuring that out, they asked themselves again, Really? Do I need to keep that much? And they gave again. The Macedonian model of giving it is absolutely based on Jesus' model of giving as well. The Christ model, the Jesus model of giving is this, that for our sake, for your sake, and for my sake, Christ became poor so that we might become rich. In John chapter 17, verse 5, this is Jesus' high priestly prayer. He says, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The Son of God gave up the glory that he had from the beginning with the Father. He gave it up all for our sake. He gave it up so that the promise of eternity, of reconciliation, of redemption might be available to his beloved. See, the Jesus model of giving is to consider others more significant and give it up. Because that is the heart of our Father in heaven. God's desire is that none should perish. So Christ became sin. He became poor so that we might be righteous. We might be rich in God's eyes. Faithful stewardship of everything, including our money and our resources, it needs to recognize this truth when it comes to considering what we bring back to God, considering what we bring back to support the body of Christ, the gathering of the saints, the beloved of God. 
And let me be sure you're clear that when I read here that the promise is, uh, of richness is given to us, it's not a promise to become rich from an earthly perspective. It's rich from a, from a heavenly one. In Luke, Jesus explains that where our treasures are stored up, that's where our heart's going to be. And we are called to store up our treasures, our riches in heaven where moth and rust, where they don't corrupt where they don't ruin things. Storing up our treasures in heaven, it requires us to consider the things of God. It requires us to do the things of God that God desires us to do. In other words, instead of trying to get rich or die trying, we're called to get rich and die trying. Because the riches we're promised, they're not here. Because it was in their poverty that the Macedonians found their joy. It is in the poverty of Christ that we gain the riches of heaven. Now, what I want to do is I want to start getting a little practical, hopefully, um, give you some suggestions, some, uh, just based on Scripture and my experiences in life with me and Suzette. But let me summarize what I have said so far. First of all, first thing is don't ask yourself how much you can give, how much I can give, thinking uh, when it comes to thinking about giving your money or your resources, donating, instead, ask how much of God's stuff do I need to keep. The second thing to consider is the call to tithe in the Old Testament. Old Testament, honestly, is fine, but I think that there's a better way now in the New Testament that we are called to give out of the abundance of grace that God has granted to each of us. To go from tithing to grace giving. The third thing we learn from this Macedonian example that was read, the example that's based on Christ, on his example, uh, we see that by the grace of God, we can first give ourselves to God, which results in the love of God becoming so pervasive in our lives that, that we have joy. And, and that, that joy responds in generosity, in spite of and sometimes because of poverty. So let me ask, you know, or talk about how we can apply these selves to ourselves as we try to be faithful stewards of our resources and riches. And the first one is based on 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 to 19. Let me read that passage to you. It says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so they may take hold of that which is truly life. The Apostle Paul is writing to his friend Timothy, in this, and he's explaining to him that those who, uh, who have the means, they have to fully understand that those means, that money, it is a tool. It is a tool for the testimony, their testimony. Because the real riches are not in the material, it's in the eternal. The money afforded to you and to me is to be used to make us rich in good works so that we can be rich with the treasures of heaven. See, our call towards faithful stewardship of our money is a call to, to build up heavenly riches, not earthly ones. Or get rich and die trying. I want to... I share, I'm going to share a few examples, practically speaking, and I don't do this out of a desire to be humble, humbly brag about something, but I'm hoping that they are useful to you. Um, I struggled with whether or not I should even share these, but I'm going to. Uh, Suzette and I, we've been given responsibility 
over quite a bit um, in our lives on this earth. Uh, we have our place here in Chicago, in Wicker Park, and we also have our place in San Francisco. Um, and and we're, we're, we appreciate, you know, that God has given us these things, but we also understand that this it's not ours. This, these are not our homes. It's God's homes, and so we want, we are called to use our riches for God's glory. It's not necessarily to grow our bank account. So when we moved to Chicago, we actually decided to keep our place in San Francisco, not so that we could have another source of income, which would have been the logical thing, but we kept it because we wanted to be able to provide an affordable home, which is really hard to find in San Francisco, to our church family there. So the rent on our place there is either a half or a third of what the equivalent would be in San Francisco. So our renters love us. Um, we just asked them to cover our mortgage, basically, and some insurance. Actually, I think we're, uh, we're losing money based on my taxes. Uh, I think we're losing money on the home, but, but that's how we wanted to make sure that we take the riches that God has provided to us, given to us, and focus on the good works, rich in good works. Because how we use our home, whether it's in San Francisco or in Chicago, this is a part of faithful stewardship. Which, that's why we open up our homes on Friday. Uh, our home on Fridays, we have, call it Lee Works. Basically, people who need a change of scenery and just work from home, we've said, come on over, just take off your shoes. We got coffee, we got Wi-Fi. Uh, we host two small groups in our homes on Wednesday and Saturday nights because we wanted to make our home available and use it for him. We, we've actually had people stay in our homes and live with us for weeks or months at a time, which is, you know, challenging. But because we want to take the riches God's given us, charge over and become rich in good works as a result. I recently learned, I didn't know this, but I recently learned that there are more than a few of you folks here uh, at Beloved that are not aware. Um, I don't receive a paycheck. I don't get paid by Church of the Beloved. Um, I've, I've mentioned this before. Uh, I am a bivocational or co-vocational pastor. Uh, here at Beloved, which means I have a full-time job. I have a full-time job that pays me my salary, and so it allows us to live in Wicker Park, uh, and so we don't accept any money from Beloved for the work I do here. Suzette, she's the director of the Hands of Work North America. Um, it's a South African-based ministry that where we're going to be partnering with when we go to Zambia. Uh, they, they care for the widows and the orphan, orphans in the southern continent of Africa, Suzette's work is 100% volunteer-based. She doesn't accept any money for the work that she does with them. Because our desire is to be rich in good works. We have the means, so for the sake of the kingdom of God, we say, we're just going to give it. Because our aim is to store up treasures in heaven by being faithful stewards of what God's granted us. To live our lives in such a manner that we can use anything we have for his glory. We live our lives asking the question, how much do I really need to keep? Not how much should I give? Now, don't get me wrong. This is not to say that you shouldn't get paid for the work that you do. You absolutely should get a paycheck. Um, I was talking with someone about the rich young ruler from Luke chapter 18. And this is where Jesus is famously quoted uh, saying that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle uh, than for a person to enter into the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were like, bummed out because it was like, who can be saved then? And Jesus' response is this. What is impossible with man is possible with God. And then in the very next chapter comes the story of Zacchaeus where God does 
the impossible. In Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector of, uh, in Jericho, uh, the impossible is made possible through God. This man was so moved by the gospel that Jesus was presenting to him that he decided, I'm going to give half my money to the poor. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to compensate everyone that I've cheated. And Jesus' response to him was this. Today, salvation has come to this house. The camel went through the eye of a needle. My point is that I want to encourage you to consider and take what you learn, your, take what you earn for a living, and allow it to be a tool of your testimony, of God's grace, of God's mercy, of God's chesed, of his, of his love. Let it be a tool. Another practical tip I want to share with you about how to be a faithful steward of God's money is found in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 7. Here it says, the rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is the slave of the lender. There's a dude named Dave Ramsey. He's a financial counselor. He's founder of the Financial Peace University. Yuji's very involved with it. Uh, she's a teacher or facilitator with that group. Um, <clears throat> you can ask her more about it. She, she really does think it's an amazing thing. Uh, but he has this phrase that he likes to use that we should all act our wage. Because debt is, debt is real. Debt is a real thing in our world, especially in the U.S. And when debt gets big, it can be so debilitating. When it gets overwhelming, it's just hard. And did you know that on average in America, people pay over $1,000 a year just on interest, but they will donate less than 300 That's rough. I'll tell you, before I met Suzette, I, uh, I owed so much credit card debt that I almost declared bankruptcy. Uh, I used to do this thing, I don't know if you all have done, done it before, where I take the credit card and the prepay and use, uh, or the cash advance and use that to pay another credit card and then pay another one. I even got gas station credit cards. I would get them so I could just get some food because uh, my credit cards would typically be maxed out. I was in a really bad place for a long time. And I was in such a bad place. I actually had my identity stolen once. And the person who stole my identity, for some unknown reason, paid their bill of the credit card and improved my credit score. That's how bad it was for me. I, but thankfully, I actually called my credit card company. I told them, I'm sorry. I, I can't pay. I have no money. I have, I have. So what they did is they actually enrolled me in a credit counseling program. Um, they took away all my credit cards, which is a good thing. Um, they allowed me to have enough to pay, you know, like rent and bills, but then they helped me pay down my debt. It took 10 years, 10 years to get out of that hole. Now, Suzette and I, we very intentionally avoid debt as much as possible. We only have one credit card. Uh, we never carry a balance on it. We, we have our mortgages, yes, but, you know, so we're kind of a slave to Bank of America. But, but we, we do our best to act our wage and avoid it because... It just allows us more opportunities to faithfully steward what God's given us charge over. Another piece of advice, maybe, consideration, is this, that your generosity is absolutely relative, all right? We aren't called to give a specific sum or a specific percentage of our income. We're called to give until it makes a difference, okay? We're called to give a difference to me, to you. We're called to give out of a grace that we've received, 
In Mark chapter 12, verse 41, it tells the story of Jesus. He said, he's people watching uh, at the church. Um, Mark chapter 12, verse 41 to 44. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Ours is out there too, just so you know. Uh, many of the rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came in and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Don't try to figure out a formula to see how much you should get. What you need to do is take a moment just to consider what to bring based on what will make a difference to you in your life, make you trust God to care for you. Here's the last one I want to share, and then we're going to close out with a communion. When it comes to bringing your offering to church or giving to charity or different ministries, I'm going to ask you to plan. Okay? I know that for many, the process of planning is to wait until the end of the year to see how much you have left and then just give a large amount, which is fine. It's, I, but I would encourage you to consider a different way. Plan it out. Make it a part of your regular routine. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, it says this. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. See, here he's just saying, don't let faithful stewardship of your money or other resources be an afterthought. Make it a forethought. Because we want to not ask the question, how much can I afford to give? We want to ask the question, how much do I need to keep? I'm telling you, money is a sensitive subject. So today was awkward for me. Uh, Stats often say that money is the leading cause of divorce. Um, So preaching about it is, you know, I don't want you to divorce me. I don't, it's a little scary. But I'll say this, we are called to be faithful stewards of everything from our chiron, our time or our moments to our talents to our spiritual gifts, and to our money and our things. So faithful stewardship of our money, it means using money as a tool of our testimony. It means for us to share the message of the Messiah, that God became poor so that we might become rich, rich in good works, rich in heaven, which is truly life. Thank you for tuning in to this week's COTB Sermon Podcast. For more info or to connect with us, you can visit our website at cotb.life. God bless and have a great week.